stand here. And um, I'm very glad that you've all made it here to our annual relocation to Barker. Um, I'm also very glad, I guess met- metaphorically speaking, that Bala, James, Mel, Charlotte, Hazel, Ronald, that you found your way to us at Sovereign Grace Runga. It's just such a blessing for you guys to join us and to be part of our family here. So a really warm welcome to you, brothers and sisters. You know, today um, I've been tasked to speak from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. And you know, today's passage is arguably the, the most popular text uh, when it comes to the Christmas story. If I ask you, what's the first image that comes to your mind when you think of the Christmas story? And if you think of baby Jesus in a manger with shepherds around him, then your mind has raced to Luke chapter 2. If you are a school teacher and you've been asked to do the end-of-year Christmas play, the chances are Luke chapter 2 is the first place that you flick to to put together a script. If you have Hark the Herald Angels Sing on your Christmas playlist this year or any year, you've been brought back via the lyrics of Charles Wesley to Luke chapter 2. But as familiar as we are with Luke chapter 2, let's, let's read this part of Scripture again, remembering that you know, as we devote ourselves to God's Word, we commune with God Himself, that we are fortified in faith, we are sanctified from sin, we are strengthened in our weakness, we are sustained in our suffering because it is his unchanging revelation. So let's, let's read from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the, the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this would be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, an, with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. 
And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father God, we come to this text and we've read and we've heard and we've heard preached this text many, many times. But Father, as much as it is a temptation for us to be over-familiarized with this wonderful account, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts as we once again come and commune with you as you speak to us through your word. So we pray that you be in our midst, open our eyes, let us glorify and praise you as we hear these words again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me begin by telling you the story, the legend of Perseus, of Perseus. As the legend goes, there was once a king by the name of Acrisius. This king was disappointed, somewhat disappointed that he didn't have a son, he didn't have an heir, so he went and he consulted an oracle. Instead of any assurances that he would have a son or an heir of his own, the oracle actually told him that his daughter, Dane, would indeed bear a son, and this son of hers would be the cause of King Acrisius's death. Frightened by this prediction, King Acrisius imprisons his own daughter in a solid bronze chamber where the only window is an open roof to the skies, isolating her from any human contact, lest she bear this son. However, looking down from the sky, Zeus sees Danae and he is attracted to her. He begins to appear to her in the form of a shower of glimmering gold, eventually seducing her. Danae falls pregnant from Zeus, despite her father's vain attempts to keep her from bearing any children. Danae then gives birth to a son by the name of Perseus, who actually goes on to be the famous Greek hero who slays Medusa and actually also fulfills the oracle's prediction of unintentionally killing his grandfather, King Acrisius. Now, many of you right now are confused. You are very confused. You are thinking that Austin has lost the plot, right? He's come to our Sunday gathering spouting stories of pagan gods when he's supposed to be opening up God's word to us and preaching the story of Christmas. You're probably worried right now. You're probably, you're probably worried, particularly if you brought a friend this morning. You're probably nervously looking at Brendo and, and Dave. You're wondering when one of them's going to cut this guy off. Just get him down from the pulpit. But friends, rest assured, I, I tell you the myth, and it is a myth of Perseus, as an example of the countless myths, legends, and fables of divine births for the purpose for the purpose of contrasting it to the historical reality that we find in Luke chapter 2. Friends, there is no historical evidence of a king Acrisius. There is no historical evidence of his daughter Danae. There is no historical account of an entity named Zeus interacting with some woman trapped in a bronze chamber. There is no verifiable historical account of Perseus slaying some snake-haired creature called Medusa. There is no lasting social movement or phenomenon resulting from the life of Perseus. But instead, stories like these are consigned to the category of what they inherently are. They are myths, they are legends, and they are fables. On the other hand, 
Every now and then we come across a story, don't we, which completely draws us in. A story which is so poignantly captures our deepest longings, our longings for homecoming, our longings for acceptance, our longings for peace, our longings for reconciliation and restoration. But you know what makes such stories when we come across them even more amazing is when we discover that these stories are actually true. I remember this happened for me when I was watching the 2016 Aussie film Lion. Has has people seen that film Lion? A story about a man who, at 25 years of age, after being separated from his family for that long, sets out to find them again. I mean, if you've seen the film, the whole film continually tugs at your heartstrings, doesn't it? Increasingly, as you watch the film, you long for this man to be reunited with his family. But you know the moment that shifted this film for me from a great film to an unforgettable film? The moment where I just melted into a sopping mess on the couch was the moment where the story transcended from being fiction to reality. You know, at the end of the film, you showed real-life footage from the man's life. And it became, at that point, overwhelmingly clear to me that this really is a true story. And friends, the account that we are given in Luke chapter 2 is in this category. In fact, it is in a higher category. It's not just based on a true story. It is the true story. It is truth. It is life-changing truth. It is the glorious intersection of a story that captures our deepest longings on one hand and at the same time is objectively, tangibly real and historical. In fact, the author Luke, he was trained as a doctor and he spells out in patently clear terms both his intention and his methodology for writing the Gospel of Luke. This is what he says in the very first verses of his Gospel account. This is what he writes. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished amongst us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Listen to this bit. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Luke's intention in writing this gospel is such that we may have certainty, that we may have a bedrock of reason for our faith. And his methodology is one that involves compiling eyewitness account after eyewitness account. Friends, his intention was to give us certainty. His methodology brings us objectivity. And he leaves us an account of highest historicity. In fact, you know the other book that, um, that Luke writes, the book of Acts in the Bible? The book of Acts, you can look this up, is hands down the most trusted primary source by 
by secular, non-Christian scholars and historians for the events that occurred after Jesus' ascension. You know, just in my readings this week, I've come across more than five instances where historians once said, ooh, look, Luke's actually got one of these details wrong in his gospel or in his account of Acts. Only then for Luke to be proven correct in subsequent research or archaeological finds. And so, friends, the, the, the accounts of Christmas given to us in Luke chapter 2 categorically captures the reality of what happened at Jesus' birth. And this is my first point. It's, it's real. It's, it's real. Let's drill down into some of the specific details of this account, which stand as evidence that this Christmas story is not myth, but it's real. And to help us remember some of these points, let me give you four Ps, four Ps to work with. Prophesied, period, people, places. P number one, prophesied. This is what Pastor Dave talked about last week from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Over 700 years prior, it was prophesied that a child would be born A son would be given to us who would bring a peace and a kingdom that has no end and who would come from the line of David. Now, this is just one of many prophecies that speak about the circumstances around Jesus' birth. We also have prophecies from Isaiah chapter chapter 7, verse 14. We've got Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We've got Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. We've got Jeremiah 31, verse 15. In other words, the Christmas story was in the works a long time ago. This is not like the myths where the, where the so-called gods just impulsively act on a whim. Instead, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there were preset parameters in Scripture specifying how the Savior will be born. There were, there were prophetic specifications that had to be fulfilled, specifications that gospel writers like Luke can't just make up or manipulate. P number two, period. Notice how Luke isn't vague about the period that this all occurred. Verse 1 doesn't ambiguously say to us, once upon a time in a land far, far away. It doesn't say that. No, there is specificity with regard to the period. There are three distinct markers of time. It happened under the reign of Caesar Augustus. It happened during an identifiable social phenomenon where people were moving and traveling to different places. And in order to be registered. And it happened at a time where there was a chap named Corinius who was in some sort of official position in Syria. You know, such specificity with regards to this timing has actually given scholars the confidence to date Jesus' birth um, to, a, to a historical window of about two to three years. P number three, people. Notice again Luke's mention of names. These aren't fictional characters. They're not fictional characters. These are are real historical figures. Caesar Augustus, born Gaius Octavius, ruled over the Roman Empire from 27 BC to 14 AD. Quirinius, full name, Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, was a Roman aristocrat who had several official positions over the province of Judea. He was a historical figure mentioned by both the Roman historian Tacitus and a Jewish historian Josephus. P number four, places. In the first four verses of our passage today, there are already five historical geographical locations mentioned. Syria, Galilee, Nazareth, Judea, Bethlehem. Luke tells us that Joseph and Mary traveled, quote, what, up 
from Nazareth to Bethlehem because Bethlehem actually sits at a higher altitude than Nazareth. Look at the, look at the precision that we are given in Luke's writings. You know, Nazareth was actually such an insignificant town that there was actually barely any reference to it um, in the surviving literature. And so what, this, what happened was this caused some critics, some historical critics, to argue that the town of Nazareth actually never really existed. But meticulous Luke corroborating eyewitness account after eyewitness account simply states to us the truth. And then lo and behold, December 2009, archaeologists from the Israeli Antiquities Authority excavated and uncovered for the very first time a house from the Jewish village of Nazareth, discovering that it actually dated from the early first century AD, completely destroying the theory that Nazareth never actually existed. I mean, overall, these four Ps, these four Ps, give us a degree of detail, a a specificity in Luke's writings, doesn't it? Details that, you know, if you think about it, aren't actually necessary for the development of the narrative. But remember, what's Luke's intention? What's Luke's intention? That we may have certainty, right? Certainty that this is for real, that this actually happened in history as prophesied with real people in real places. But not only is the Christmas story real, point number two, the Christmas story is also radical. It's radical. You know the word radical comes from the Latin word radix, and radix means root. And so the story of Jesus' birth is radical because it establishes the roots, do you know what I'm saying? The roots of Jesus' entire ministry. The fundamental characteristics of Jesus' ministry is found in the story of his birth. The Christmas story gives us a paradigm. It gives us a window with which to view Jesus' entire ministry. Let me read it again. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel there with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. Now, in this passage... Right. What I want you to notice is there are clearly two different scenes being described. Two different scenes. Firstly, Luke's describing what's happening at the birth scene of Jesus. That's scene number one. And secondly, you've got scene number two, which is what's happening with the angels and the shepherds in the fields. Now, when, when, when we visualize the scene of Jesus' birth, if you're anything like me, you're prone to merge those two scenes. You're prone to merge those scenes. And this is what I mean. We often picture in our minds, you've got Joseph, you've got Mary, 
and possibly a few cute animals in a room. You've got this warm, angelic glow over baby Jesus in a manger, and he's just cuddled in this golden straw. Everyone is looking elated with serene smiles, all looking at at photographer Rob Vuia, capturing this picture-perfect moment, right? But friends, this, this is a sanitized impression of the nativity scene. This is a sanitized impression of the nativity scene. Such imaginations actually veil our eyes from the brutal reality of Jesus' birth. This is Mary's firstborn son, let alone the Son of God, and yet he is laid in a manger. I mean, even the word manger is sanitized in our minds. This is an animal's feeding trough. I mean, you can see on the screen, in, in fact, archaeological finds from places like Bethlehem and Megiddo would actually quickly dismantle any notion of some beautifully carved wooden crib. Instead, chances are that the manger that Jesus was laid in was simply a crude block of stone with a hole carved into it so you can put animal feed into it. Friends, as you can see, the scene of Jesus' birth is by no means some Christmas card photo op. This is a picture of utter humiliation. Utter humiliation. This is God himself, the eternally begotten son, emptying himself and taking the form of a servant. This is the second person of the Holy Trinity, not counting equality with God, a thing to be grasped, maybe being born in the likeness of man, descending from heaven and physically laid in the lowest places amongst men, the cold, hard stone trough from which animals feed. And as he is lowered into this feeding trough, he is wrapped in swaddling cloth. And you might think this is a cute and adorable sight that he's wrapped in swaddling cloths, but let me put it into eternal context for you. To echo the words of Proverbs 30, he who established all the ends of the earth, he who gathered the winds in his fist, he who wrapped up the waters, did you catch that? He wrapped up the waters in a garment. He himself is now subject to the elements and he himself must be tenderly wrapped in swaddling cloth. From his heavenly throne to an animal's feeding trough, from majestic robes to swaddling cloths, church, behold your meek and lowly Savior. And why exactly is he wrapped in swaddling cloth and placed in a manger? Why? Luke tells us. Because there was no place for them in the inn. Oh, friends, this is not just a a picture of utter humiliation. This is also a foreshadowing of a life of utter rejection. Let there not be a doubt in your mind, friends. This nativity scene is radical. It is paradigmatic. It is a window into the rest of Jesus' life, and it is a foreshadowing of his death. You know, I've heard it, I've heard it said amongst some Christians that we make too much of Christmas, that we should, instead we should be a people shaped by Easter. And in one sense, I agree. But on the other hand, we are people shaped by both Christmas 
and Easter. Why? Because the roots of Easter are found at Christmas. Christmas and Easter share the same blueprint. Christmas and Easter are of the same paradigm. Can you see the parallels, my friends? At Christmas, Jesus, in his humiliation, was wrapped in swaddling cloths. But just over 30 years later, at Easter, Jesus would be beaten, he would be stripped, he would be crucified, and he would be wrapped in a linen shroud. At Christmas, Jesus, in his humiliation, was laid in an animal's feeding trough, carved from stone. And yet, just 30 years later, at Easter, having died upon the cross, They laid him in a tomb cut from stone. At Christmas, Jesus, in his rejection, found that there was no place for him at the inn. And throughout his whole ministry, he continued to testify of his rejection. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In fact, by the morning of Good Friday, the Roman authorities, the religious elite, The whole population of Jerusalem, all collective humanity, had reached the unanimous decision that there was actually no place in all the world for this man, and that the only fitting place to put him was on a Roman cross, suspended between heaven and earth, rejected by man and forsaken by God. Can you see the parallels, my friends? So now having established that the nativity scene is a, is a paradigm of Jesus' humiliation and rejection, let's turn our attention now to the, to the second scene that Luke describes for us happening in the fields. Here we've got the shepherds, they're keeping night watch over their flock, and an angel of the Lord appears to them, telling them the good news that born today in the city of David is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel is then joined by a multitude of angels praising God. Okay, a little, a little bit of background first. Shepherds, shepherds had, a, had a very low ranking in the moral order of the day. Honestly, they had a similar moral standing to that of a tax collector. You know, one commentator uh, amusingly uh, comments that shepherds often found it a little bit difficult to distinguish between what's mine and what's thine. In other words, they had a reputation of claiming as theirs what belongs to others. Their testimony, therefore, was often dismissed in Jewish courts of law And on top of that, the very nature of their work with animals made them ceremonially unclean. And yet, friends, yet, take note what happens here. An angel of the Lord appears to this ragtag bunch of shepherds. You know, fair enough, an angel angel appears to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. Fair enough, he's a priest of God. Later in Luke chapter 1, and angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Fair enough. She's a sweet and blameless young lady. But here, here, the angel of the Lord appears to these wild, unruly, filthy bunch of shepherds. And not only that, notice specifically what Luke says in verse 9. This bit's amazing. Not only did the angel of the Lord appear to them, but the glory The glory of the Lord shone around them. Did you catch that? The glory of the Lord 
shone around them. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord manifested only in the holiest of places. The glory of the Lord manifested in the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord manifested in the temple of Solomon. The glory of the Lord manifested to holy prophets like Ezekiel. But now, in the open fields, in the open fields, the glory of the Lord shines upon this ragtag bunch of shepherds. Friends, do you notice something very strange about this account. It's very strange about these two contrasting scenes that we see in Luke's account. You would have thought, I would have thought that the holy arrival of the God's own Son on earth would have been accompanied by a multitude of angels at the scene of birth, right? But notice what Luke mentions. No angelic presence at the nativity scene. No heavenly welcome for the Son of God. No glory of of the Lord manifesting around the manger. Instead, the entire angelic presence is concentrated in the fields with the shepherds. The manifest glory of the Lord bathes these morally dubious, ceremonially unclean shepherds. But herein lies the gospel, my friends. Herein lies good news of great joy for all the people. Is this not good news, my friend? Is this not the essence of the gospel? That as the Son of God enters the world in his humiliation, as he willingly accepts his rejection, at that very same moment that he is wrapped in the humble garments of a baby swaddling cloth, morally dubious, wretched sinners like you and I are wrapped in the shining glory of the Lord. We are embraced, we are loved, we are spoken to. And we are brought into the very presence of the Lord. As Christ begins his lifelong walk down the path of rejection, angels herald in the open fields the good news of our acceptance. This, my friends, is a scandalous exchange. It's scandalous. This, my friends, is grace abounding. This, my friends, is the gospel. It is good news of great joy. Do you see the irony? Do you see the irony? Look at verse 14. The heavenly hosts sing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. The irony of that statement. The single person in all the sin-filled world with whom God could possibly be pleased with is that baby lying in a manger. The single person who deserved to be sung over by all the heavenly host was the baby Jesus. But the scandalous grace of God. These filthy shepherds are now wrapped in heavenly glory. The scandal that a a holy God could be pleased with these lying, thieving shepherds. Oh, the, 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 the grace of God, the scandal that a holy God could ever be pleased with a, with a treacherous sinner like me. 
Oh, the scandalous exchange that God would place upon his son, the humiliation, the rejection that we deserve such that we may be counted, that we may be counted amongst those with, th- with whom he is pleased. You know, even all the heavenly hosts, even all the heavenly hosts, they had not seen such a lavish display of divine grace. They had never seen anything like this. That's why they could not help themselves. But they rushed upon the scene singing, Glory, glory, glory to God in the highest. Friends, the Christmas narrative is real. It's historically real. The Christmas narrative is radical. And that leads to our third and final point. It's real. It's radical. And therefore, it requires our response. You know, today's passage gives us two wonderful models on how we can respond to this good news of great joy. Maybe you're here and this is the first time that you've really begun to understand how Christmas is the birth of good news. You've begun to see that the whole tapestry of Jesus' birth and, and, and life and death is all actually woven from one piece of cloth. One piece of cloth, all pointing to his humiliation and his rejection in our place. Maybe today the Lord has convicted you in your heart that you're actually really no different from those shepherds in the field. There are things that you've done in your life which you are guilty and ashamed of. And yet today you have heard God's offer of peace. And to you I say, follow Follow in the footsteps of the shepherds. Reading from verse 15. When the angels went away from them into the heavens, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to them. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Friends, you have heard the good news preached today. And now go. Go and see. Go and investigate for yourself that this is true. Don't make the mistake that millions upon millions of people make every year at Christmas time. They are taken up for a mere moment at the wonder of Christmas, only to have it dissipate in their hearts like a morning mist. Because why? Because they do not go with haste. They do not go with haste to see for themselves that this good news is true. Do what the angel says in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You see, friends, the swaddling cloths and the animal's feeding trough, they are historic and real, but they are also symbolic of Christ's humiliation and rejection. And therefore, I I urge you, I encourage you to continue walking through the gospel of Luke. Read the Gospel of Luke, observing all of Jesus' life and ministry, and observe most of all the climax of it, where he suffered the ultimate humiliation, the ultimate rejection in his death upon the cross in your place. Friends, you've heard the good news here this morning, and with haste, go. Go and see yourself. You know, don't hesitate at all. If, if, if you are wanting someone to come alongside you to read the Gospel of Luke, We'd be more than happy to. I'd be more than happy to. I know there are people in and amongst us that would be more than happy to walk with you, to serve you in this way. You know, also, we've, uh, 
recently we've finished a, a preaching a sermon series where we've walked verse by verse through the entire book of Luke. So please jump online, check out the website, and, and use that as a guide as you read and you walk with Jesus through the book of Luke. You know, for the rest of us here, maybe this story, this, this sermon is simply just another sermon in a long line of Christmas sermons that you've heard year after year as a Christian. So much so that you are just so tempted to, to think, been there, done that. In which case, come with me to verses 18 and 19. This is what Luke writes. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who, wondered, all who heard it wondered at these things that the shepherds told them. But Mary, listen to this, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Friends, notice for a moment the humility and the posture of this woman's heart. I mean, she's just traveled 80 miles. She's just traveled 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. She's then discovered that there's no place for them to stay. She's had to give birth to her child in and amongst a room of animals. And then in the middle of the night, as she's trying to get rest, she's disturbed by a bunch of excitable shepherds, strangers, I mean strangers for all she knew. And guess what? She has the humility and she has the patience to receive their testimony. I mean, she, she could have so easily... She could have so easily dismissed them and said to Joseph, get these shepherds out of here, blabbering on about some angelic visitation. Do they not know that I myself was visited by the angel Gabriel? But she doesn't do that. Not only does she hear them out, she treasures up all that they say. She takes the words, she takes the phrases, she takes the testimony, and she finds a place in her heart to store them all up. She's, I mean, imagine what she's doing. She's making mental connections. She's, making mental, she's, she's reflecting on her own angelic visitation. She's reflecting on the fact that her old and, and barren cousin Elizabeth suddenly is pregnant. She's reflecting that uh, her husband uh, Joseph had a, had a dream one night and suddenly he's at peace with the whole situation, and now she's adding to her own treasury of faith, her own treasury of faith, the testimony of these most ordinary shepherds. She takes the time again to marvel at God's unfolding work right before her eyes. She marvels again at the fact that she, she personally has been included. She's been folded in into God's story of salvation. Friends, is this the posture of your heart when it comes to Christmas? Do you marvel at the fact that you, you personally have been included, you've been folded in to God's story of salvation? I mean, it's real. It's radical. But not only that, you've been brought into the story. This is not just a story out there. This is your story. Yes, it's true. Year after year, this 
this ordinary pastoral team disturbs your crazy month of December to bring you the message of Christmas. But don't let us ordinary messengers detract in any way the the wonder that is owed to an extraordinary message of Christmas, that God's own son would humble himself, would be willingly rejected in your place such that you may have peace with God. Friends, whether you are someone who's heard this for the very first time this morning or whether you've known this story so well but you've treasured it up again, there's really only one way to respond to this message and it's captured for us in verse 20, isn't it? And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So let's respond now in glory and praise to our God. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, when we step back and we see the reality, the radicalness of what you did at Christmas, and then you draw us into your story, so that it becomes our story. There is really only one way to respond. Glory, glory, glory to God in the highest. We praise and we worship and we glorify your name right here, right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.